Good morning. It's neat sometimes when the Lord seems to bring things together. Uh, the topic of my sermon is the dangers of being blind. The dangers of being blind. So hopefully we have here an example before us. I had a slide to put up regarding that as well. Um, thinking of, of uh, first of all, something we can more easily connect with, and that's the danger of physical blindness. Um, most of us, I think none of us in this, in this room is physically blind, but uh, some of us may have had an opportunity to play a game where uh, we put blinders across our eyes, and all of a sudden we can't see, and we need to walk, and we start realizing what are the dangers of uh, spiritual blindness. I'm sure we'll get the picture up soon. Um, but what I want to talk about isn't the danger of physical blindness. It's the danger of spiritual blindness. And when I say spiritual blindness, I mean blindness in the things pertaining to God. So in this particular uh, case, as Luke was uh, sharing his uh, testimony, he confessed he, he was blind. He didn't see his actual spiritual state. He thought he was saved, but he wasn't saved. And uh, in a similar way, we can be blind to spiritual things. So turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 18, and we'll see a case of spiritual blindness in the lives of the 12 disciples. Here are people who've been walking with Jesus for three years, and yet we'll see they had a very clear case of spiritual blindness. Luke chapter 18, and starting verse 31. It says, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, or in other words, see, we are walking up to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man, will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. And they will scourge him and put him to death. And the third day he will rise again. That's what Jesus told them would happen. Here's how they respond. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. Then it happened, as he was coming near Jericho, that a certain blind man sat by the road begging, and bearing a multitude, and hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out, saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, 
receive your sight, your faith has saved you. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So what was the spiritual blindness that the uh, apostles or the 12 disciples were under? Well, it was the blindness to the fact that as they were going up to Jerusalem, uh, their trip to Jerusalem would not end with, the, with Jesus being seated on the throne and with a crown on his head. That's what, what they expected. Instead, what awaited Jesus in Jerusalem was a cross, and the uh, time there would end with an empty tomb. They were blind to that fact. They thought they were going to Jerusalem to see Jesus enthroned and crowned as the Messiah of Israel and beginning his messianic reign over Israel and the whole world. Instead, the cross was waiting. And that's what Jesus was trying to communicate to them in verses 31 and 30, sorry, 30, 31 through 33. But verse 34 tells us they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. They were blind. They couldn't see it. Jesus just told them, what seems to us as plain English, I imagine it was plain Hebrew to them, and yet they couldn't understand, they couldn't see what Jesus was talking about. Now, uh, often when I read these passages, I tend to, to give people the benefit of the doubt. Well, you know, who knows what was going on? Maybe Jesus was saying it, but on the other hand, God was just kind of keeping them so they wouldn't know what was happening. Well, that's kind of foolish. It doesn't really make sense. Jesus is God, and he's clearly trying to communicate to them. And uh, we can turn to other passages. This is not the first time Jesus did it. In all three uh, Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus tells them this three times. Uh, the first passage I have up there is for Matthew, but you could find it in Mark. You can find it in Luke. And uh, see if it pops up there. Great. Uh, and this is right after Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And uh, Peter gets it right and say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And finally, it seems clear they see who Jesus is, and Jesus is beginning to tell them more about the nature of his ministry. And so it says in verse 21, Matthew 16, 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So this is not the first time he told them. It's at least the third time. And he's probably told them more than three times. Here he just says he began. They needed to start understanding what his ministry was all about, that he came to die in the place of sinners on the cross and then rise from the dead. That is the work of salvation that he came to do. So he's trying to help them see it, and we see in that occasion as well, they didn't quite accept what Jesus was saying. In fact, Peter, who, you know, we give Peter a hard time, but he was probably speaking what all of them were thinking when he said, when he took him, Jesus aside, and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. He's resisting, Jesus is revealing, he's saying, No, Jesus. What you said is not true. You need to change what you're saying. You need to change what, you're, what will happen to you. This cannot happen to you. 
And uh, we see Jesus' response in the rest of the verses. For the sake of time, we won't read it. The next passage I picked from Luke chapter 9, verse 44 through 45. Again, in all three Gospels, this is there. And Jesus, this is after the Mount of Transfiguration. So Jesus, before his disciples' eyes, changed into the appearance he has as the Son of God. And they were completely flattened by it. But now he went down, he heals somebody, and he says this to them, let these words sink down into your ears. Does it seem like Jesus wants them to understand what he's talking about? For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them, so that they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So again, this spiritual blindness, now they're not arguing with him, but uh, it seems that they're kind of understanding enough of what he's saying that they're afraid to ask him. They're kind of, you know, we don't like what he's talking about. I don't think we really understand and are getting it, but I don't really want to know anymore, so I'm not going to ask. Okay? It's, it's a form of will. It's been said no one is as blind as him who will not see. They're not willing to see what Jesus is talking, but that's why they're not asking. And, of course, the final passage we already looked at in Luke, and Jesus says it, and it just seems to, uh, there's a phrase, as I understand, that says, like water off a duck's back. I mean, it's like, you know, he's saying it, but it doesn't touch them. They don't seem to be even trying to engage with him telling them about dying on the cross anymore. So we can, we can certainly judge the disciples, but uh, as, as we saw today, it's possible for us to experience um, blindness as well, spiritual blindness, blindness in the things concerning to God. I thought maybe we'll turn to an example. You can turn there. I, I do have the verses up above, the verses I'm planning to read, so you don't have to turn there, but if you want to see it in, the, in your Bible, it's good, because I picked one of the verses <clears throat> One of the passages that people have a harder time with, uh, James chapter 2. <clears throat> we'll start in verse 14, James chapter 2. James says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Let me read a couple more verses. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. We'll stop here. You could read to the end of uh, chapter 2, and it's pretty much the same topic. Usually, we're very careful to teach the other side of what this passage is teaching, because that seems to be the error that most people fall to. Most people feel that they're saved by their works, that there's something good that they need to do in order to be saved. And we tell them, no, works do not save you, it's faith that saves you. And I don't want to go back on that teaching. That is what the Bible teaches. 
you know, not by the works of this hand. There's nothing good that I can do to save myself. Only what Jesus did on the cross can save me. And uh, in fact, Martin Luther, who was very big into that, salvation by faith alone, we are told, really disliked this passage. And he disliked this passage so much, he wanted to throw the book of James out of the accepted books in the Bible. And the problem is you can't. You know, you can't pick and choose what part of the Bible you believe, or you really are starting to write your own Bible, and you're just going to believe what you want. So he was stuck. He wanted to throw it out. He couldn't. He had to keep what it says. Now, what does it say? <clears throat> what does it mean that faith cannot save you? What this passage is talking about is the type of faith that saves. You may believe that you believe. We had an example this morning, as Luke was sharing with us. He believed that he was saved. It says he had some doubts, but he recognized, well, we're saved by faith. I think I believe, and therefore, I think I'm saved. This passage was written to shake up that kind of false confidence. What James is saying here, if your faith is not demonstrated by your works, if you're not living a life that is consistent with the faith that you claim to have, you're not saved. That's what he means when he says, can faith save him? No, faith of this sort that doesn't have any outworking in your life cannot save you. Now, Jesus effectively says the same thing again. It sounds like a mean thing to say, but uh, this is in uh, Matthew chapter 7. Sounds like a mean thing to say. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's a nasty surprise to get to heaven, or if you would, to die, and realize that all your hopes were in vain. And the book of James and Jesus in this passage is trying to shake those kinds of false hopes, thinking you're going to heaven because you've made a profession when there's no evidence of it being true in your life. Now, we're told that Martin Luther tried to argue with the passage, and eventually he gave up, which is good. We still have the book of James. Now, that's the first level of spiritual <coughs> blindness. And Luke made an interesting uh, point that the voice of God seemed to get weaker and weaker and weaker, as the Lord was speaking to him, it was not the voice of God that was getting weaker and weaker and weaker. There was just more and more resistance that the voice of God was trying to penetrate. My hearing is not very good, so you might talk, and it sounds to me like you're not talking very well, but it's not your voice that's the problem. It's my ears. And we see the disciples developing this increasing stages of spiritual blindness to the message of the cross. Jesus told them, that he would be crucified, and they argued with him. All right? Then Jesus tells them again that he'll be crucified. They're not arguing anymore. They've passed into a different level. They're just kind of afraid to ask. It's like, well, he's talking about this dying again, and we know that can't be true, but you know, what is he talking about? And they're afraid to ask. They won't ask him. Now, they're responsible for that decision, to not engage and find out what he's saying. And then 
the final one is telling them this, and I mentioned it's like waters off a duck's back. They're not engaged with it. Oh, he's talking about this death again. Just ignore it. You know, whatever he's talking about, you know, this can't apply. It can't be what we think it is. We're not going to worry about what he's talking about anymore. They're just completely blind to what Jesus is talking about, which is a very dangerous thing to be doing with the word of God. Uh, as I understand, the phrase uh, like waters off a duck's back is designed to be a good thing. Somebody is saying something bad about you, well, you can react to it, you know, and get upset with them. And it's better to just, you know, like waters off a duck's back. Don't let it bother you, okay? Don't let it shake you up. Don't let the word of God be waters off a duck's back from you. The word of God is meant to be listened to and understand and obeyed. And if you're not doing that, there's something wrong, not with the word of God, but with you. Okay, so that's the case of spiritual blindness with the believers. We see their increasing blindness. Now, I want to think a little bit about the consequences. So one consequence, which was evident in this passage, is um, there's a pot the potential of a person thinking they're saved and not being saved, and they'll find out too late, and that's the worst possible thing. But that wasn't the case with the disciples. Jesus will tell them a little while later that they are all clean, but not all of you. He was talking about Judas, which means the rest of them were saved. It wasn't a question of salvation for the disciples. Uh, so what was it? Why does Jesus, why is Jesus trying to make them see and recognize the cross? Why is there, what other consequences of spiritual blindness might be that the disciples are in danger of? Well, the first one uh, that I, I could think of is that they're about to stumble in their faith. Let's see if we can get our next picture up. Right. I, I showed that at first. You see, there's, there's a danger here. There's a blind person, and uh, she's about to stumble. Now, there's people who are warning her about it and are trying to be the still, small voice of God, trying to speak and warn her to keep her from stumbling. But this is what's going to happen to the disciples. Jesus is trying to prepare them for what happens. Uh, in the parenting class, I took... Uh, we were told about, uh, uh, trying to remember the right word, I think it was called a, a pre-activity warning. <clears throat> I know my kids are going into a situation in which they might make a mistake, and I'd like them not to make a mistake. So before we get there, we talk to them and say, you know, when we get to church, please be courteous to people and say hi to them. And, uh, you know, do this and don't do that ahead of time to try to stop them from failing when the situation arises. And this may be one of the things Jesus was trying to do. The faith of the disciples would be severely tested when Jesus would be crucified. They think he's coming to receive a crown and a throne, and instead he's getting a cross. What will happen to their faith? Well, we see later on what happens to their faith. Their faith seems to be crumbling as a result of this. Now, praise the Lord. You know, saved once, saved forever. The Lord's bring them through it to the other side. But they had some really bad days because they didn't believe what Jesus was telling them. Things would have gotten much, would have gone much better for them in Jerusalem if they simply believed what Jesus said, that a cross was waiting for them. Okay, so that's one reason. Uh, the other reason of why Jesus was trying to wake them up to the fact he'll be crucified in Jerusalem 
that I was thinking of, that's in the next uh, picture here. This is what I call uh, you know, missing the ball. I was at a party yesterday, and we don't tend to do it in our parties. Of course, our children are younger, but uh, the kids were blindfolded when the piñata was, so to speak, hang before them, and uh, they were given a bat, and they were trying to swing at the piñata, and of course, the piñata would be lifted up. Now, they're blindfolded, so they can't even tell. Someone lifted the piñata. You know, they're just swinging at MTL. And uh, some of them came out of it kind of upset. This is not fair. <laughs> you know, you're blindfolding me, and then you're moving the piñata, and you're expecting me to hit it? Well, the disciples, in a sense, were missing the ball because the cross was the central part of Jesus' ministry on the earth. When they didn't understand the cross, and by the way, the disciples were doing it to themselves, so we have a little bit less sympathy for them than the person holding the bat here, but <clears throat> the cross was the center of Jesus' work for our salvation. Not just for that particular time, but throughout eternity, all of uh, humanity, all the angelic beings will be focused on the cross and what Jesus did on the cross, because in the cross, the full glory of God is revealed. And that's what Jesus wanted them to begin to see. We, we had a breaking of bread this morning, and one of the brothers suggested that uh, the men will stand up and share their favorite verse. And uh, almost all the verses talked about the cross or about the effects of the cross. Without an understanding of the cross, where was their understanding of Jesus? Now, they got to walk with Jesus. They got to see Jesus. They got to see him being kind to people. They, they felt his kindness toward them. But they were missing the main truth about Jesus that should have made them fall to their knees and worship him. And Jesus was trying to open their eyes for it. We're told that eternal life is that we might know God and Jesus Christ, whom God has sent to us. To know God is the very purpose of our existence. And Jesus was trying to show it to his disciples, and they were dropping the ball or missing the ball. But that's one of the things he was trying to make them see, is just see himself. This is who I am. This is what I am about, the cross. The second thing, or the third thing, that uh, perhaps Jesus was trying to accomplish by turning their eyes to the cross is they were missing the balls in regard, the ball, in regard to uh, what I call Christian service, or the way Jesus wanted them to be. There's a hidden passage here in Luke. Uh, it's in Mark chapter 10. Again, for the sake of time, I have it right there for you. And uh, it happens between when Jesus warns them, or Jesus tells them about the cross, and between the next passage where uh, uh, Jesus heals the blind uh, beggar Bartimaeus, this passage happens in both Matthew and Mark. It's right there in between. And what happens, this doesn't have all of it, but uh, James and John, at the encouragement of their mother, go to Jesus and say, Jesus, we realize that uh, you're going to sit on the throne in the kingdom of heaven. And in fact, we think that's where you're going right now in Jerusalem. 
and we would, would like you to give us whatever it is that we want. And Jesus says, okay, what do you want? And they say, well, we would like one of us to sit on your right-hand side, one of us to sit on your left-hand side in the kingdom. They wanted the highest place next to Jesus. Now, not surprisingly, as we see here, when the ten or the other ten hear about it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. It's like, wait a second, you two want to set yourself up there and now all of us are down here below you? And then Jesus used it as an opportunity to again try to open their eyes to the reality of the Christian life or Christian service. And he says this, But when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, which is obviously what the ten were afraid, James and John were about to start doing to them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus here defines and tells us what it is to be like, what to be what it is like, sorry, to be great in the kingdom of God. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you need to serve others. You need to become your... You know, there's lots of room at the bottom. And that's where the top is in God's kingdom. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, go to the bottom and serve, serve others. If you want to be the very first, the greatest Christian in this church or in the world, become slave of all. There's lots of room for you at the bottom. It's not crowded. For some reason, people don't head that way. But Jesus said, that is the place of greatness in my kingdom. And again, he ties it to the cross. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. You want to see the greatest person in the kingdom? Well, look at Christ. Well, what is it that Christ did? He came and he gave up his life for all of us. He took the lowest place possible, becoming sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He did uh, the, the greatest possible sacrifice that anyone can ever do. We can't. As much as I want to serve you, there's one thing I can't do. I can't pay for your sins. I'm a sinner myself. I need to be there for my own. I need to, to go to hell for my own sins. But Jesus did not deserve to go to hell. He deserved to be with his Father in heaven in perfect fellowship forever. He went the entire distance to hell to pay for your sins and mine. And that is the greatest place in the kingdom of God. Christ has the top place because he went all the way to the bottom. If you want to be great in God's kingdom... That's where you need to go as well. And of course, because the disciples were blind to the reality of the cross, they were blind to the reality of the Christian life that Jesus wanted them to have. Again, they were missing the ball of God's purpose for them in his kingdom. Blindness. Well, the, the last effect of blindness 
is uh, evident in the rest of the passage. In Luke, it's the story of the blind beggar. And I won't go into details, into it for the sake of time, but I'll try to show something that perhaps you haven't noticed in the story of the blind beggar before. So uh, we're told that the blind beggar was there, and he was hearing a multitude passing by, and uh, he asked what it meant. Well, the first thing that stands out to me is here's Jesus, the man who can heal people's blindness. And he's been doing it for three years. The disciples were with him as he's been doing it. Well, here's a perfect candidate for Jesus' ministry. Here's a person that's blind. Why doesn't one of the disciples say, oh, look at that, a blind beggar. What a great person, you know, opportunity I have to help this poor guy because right here, just feet away from him is passing the person who can help him. They should go and tell the beggar, hey, Jesus is passing by. Just come over him. Ask him to heal you, and he will heal you. Does that happen? No, they just walk by this blind beggar, completely ignoring his need next to them. Now, the blind beggar is, uh, is clever enough. Boy, there's a lot of feet passing by. You know, this might be some moment of opportunity for me. And I don't know what he was thinking. He may have been thinking of, you know, maybe some rich guys passing by, and I... I can really get something good today. And <clears throat> they tell him, no, it's Jesus of Nazareth that's passing by. And the beggar has heard about him, and he has believed who Jesus is. This is the Messiah. And he realized, here's my opportunity. And he starts crying out. And the most amazing thing happens. The disciples warn him to be quiet. They say, shut up. You know, we're in our parade here to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to become king, and you're spoiling the whole thing. I mean, it's amazing to me, they must be more blind than the beggar is. I mean, this is what Jesus came to do, to help people like him. And they don't see it. Now, it's, uh, it's interesting to me, Jesus does here something I don't remember he does before. He commands them to go bring the blind beggar to him. Now, Jesus could have come to the blind beggar himself. He could have probably just called him, and he would have come to him based on sound. But Jesus says, no, you guys go and bring this man to me. And the other interesting thing is Jesus asked him, well, what is it? He asked the blind beggar, what is it that you want me to do for you? Now, Jesus knows what the blind beggar wants him to do. The blind beggar knows what he wants Jesus to do to him. The only people who seem to be ignorant of that fact are the disciples, not recognize that here's a man that needs Jesus and wants Jesus. And here's Jesus very willing to help this man. So again, Jesus trying to open their eyes to the sight, their eyes to this man. And I, I have to confess, um, it's easy to, to preach and to preach at others and expect other people to, you know, accept what the scriptures is saying. And at the same time, there's a big hole in your own heart. And uh, this is probably my greatest weakness as a Christian. And that is seeing the need of others, having compassion for others, that Jesus is trying to help them see. That's one of the things that uh, I'd like to see more in my life, and I'm sure you want to see more in your life as well. We have here at the end the cure of, the, of blindness, and of course it's Jesus curing the blind beggar. We're not sure what state the disciples are left with, but we do have here the secret to being healed of blindness. And uh, the blind man is healed. There's two things we can attribute to it. One, well, he calls upon the Lord. 
and there's nothing wrong with that. I appreciate uh, Luke sharing about just crying out to God and asking God to save him. And one of the persons at the breaking of bread uh, stood up and shared his favorite verse, saying it was that whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God doesn't hold back his reaches of mercy from anybody. So certainly calling upon God and asking him to heal you of your blindness is, is uh, you know, a great way to go, to be healed of your blindness. But what stands out to me is Jesus tells the man, your faith has saved you. And that's really the key to be healed of spiritual blindness. It's faith. It's believing what God is telling you in his word. Jesus has been telling them, we're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified. You want to be healed, healed of that blindness? Believe what Jesus is saying. He will be crucified. Now for us, it may be something else in our lives that God wants to open our eyes for, but the key is believe what God is saying in his word. To be healed of spiritual blindness, believe what God is saying in his word. Now, I'd like to uh, close with uh, reading an excerpt of an article I read and then a, a poem that was quoted by that article. And uh, <clears throat> here it is. One of my favorite characters in all history is General William Booth. This is what the person who wrote this article was writing. General Booth was the founder of the Great Salvation Army when it was more salvation than it was army. He led in spreading the gospel over much of the world as he organized street meetings and evangelistic services. With the passing of the years, General Booth became an invalid. His eyesight failed him. And one year, he was in such bad health that he was unable to attend the Salvation Army Convention in London, England. Somebody suggested that General Booth send a telegram or a message to be read at the opening of the convention. General Booth agreed to do so. When the thousands of delegates met, the moderator announced that General Booth would not be able to, present, to be present because of failing health and eyesight. Gloom and pessimism swept across the floor of the convention. A little light dispelled some of the darkness when the moderator announced that General Booth had sent a message to be read with the opening of the first session. He opened the message and began to read the following. So this is the message, and I'll give you a hint ahead of time. It's one word. Dear delegates of the Salvation Army Convention, others, signed General Booth, others. And uh, the writer of the, of the article then attached a hymn, uh, or the words of a hymn written by Charles D. Meigs. Maybe we could get it up there. This is how the hymn or poem goes. Lord... Help me live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way that even when I kneel to pray, my prayer shall be for others. Others, Lord, yes, others, 
Let this my motto be, help me to live for others, that I may live like thee. Help me in all the work I do to ever be sincere and true, and know that all I do for you must needs be done for others. Let self be crucified and slain and buried deep, and all in vain may efforts be to rise again, unless to live for others. And when my work on earth is done, and my new work in heaven's begun, may I forget the crown I've won while thinking still of others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are ever working in our lives to open our eyes to better see you. And uh, we ask, Lord, as we seek to better see you still, that you might uh, give us more of the vision you had for the world, more of the vision you had to others, really esteeming others better than yourself. Help us to do the same. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.